This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. This week, it's episode two of the quarterly co-host with the amazing Peter Jenkins. Let's jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution or one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin so if you're new here hit subscribe hit the bell hit all those magical algorithm buttons my name's james mcpherson from risk fluent rebounding safety is our purpose at risk fluent so thank you very much for joining us here on our journey Today is episode two of our quarterly co-host where we hand over the reins to one person uh, and this it's all theirs to so do whatever they want to do, communicate a message, share a story, um, get more people on, talk to a load of different people, do whatever they want. And Peter is talking about the amazing mind of his, essentially, and the work that he's doing around considering the marketing, the brand, and the kind of customer experience, I suppose, the user experience of safety. So definitely something interesting for you to keep track of. If you haven't listened to episode one, make sure you go and listen to that. But I won't say any more because, Pete, this is your show, so I'll hand over to you. Right, mate. Welcome back to the podcast, your second episode of Courtly Co-Host. I'm just, as we press recorded, thinking, shit, is my phone on silent? Yes, it is. There we go. Been sitting here, I'm talking for, what, an hour, and I haven't checked my phone on silent. The second I press record, it reminded me. You know it's just going to ring straight away if you do. Yeah, that's that's the second I press record, that is always when it rings. So I'm like, (laughs) that's what reminds me. That's my nudge to check. Um, But I just look like a dickhead host that I press recording and i'm like instantly like yeah yeah that's fine well that'll be good then for episode three i'll make sure that i give you a call within the first 30 seconds and we'll (laughs) test it we'll see you've heard it at first listeners right if you hear that phone go off in the first minute of the third episode you'll know he's cocked up yeah yeah definitely i'm gonna leave it on loud now (laughs) um right mate do you want to introduce yourself and and um the concept of what we're talking about your quarterly co-host kind of what we covered in episode one as well and what we're gonna and then introduce the concept of today and we'll get into the conversation. Absolutely. So hello, everyone. It is a pleasure to be back for episode two. Now, in the first episode, we introduced the idea of personal branding, but not necessarily your traditional type of personal branding, which was focused on kind of like getting a job type of thing. It was really looking more about the personal part of personal branding, maybe answering that key question of who am I versus who am I to you? So Perhaps the outcome, I'd say, James, was that it was quite a grey area, right? It's not an easy question to answer is who am I, right? It really isn't, really, really isn't. And this episode and episode two, we're going to take this a little bit further with the idea of branding. And we're going to talk about procedure or initiative branding or rather functional branding within safety. Some of the type of work that I've done before, some of the work that James is currently doing at the moment. And we'll be throwing in a couple of questions prospectively for yourselves as well. And we're going to finish it on the third episode by talking about what is prospectively wrong, what could be improved, what could be made better about the brand of safety overall, globally, in the context of right now, but also what we might need to be thinking about, what we as professionals, as a community, 
might be needing to do in the future in terms of taking ownership and bringing it to the best place it can possibly be. But anyway, that's all the third episode. Um, in today's episode, we're going to talk about kind of three broad areas type stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about what is kind of process functional initiative branding. You know, how do we brand safety with our processes and with our functions and all of that type of stuff? But we're then moving on to something around scalable frameworks. God, there's a load of absolute bloody rubbish acronyms in health and safety. And hopefully we won't be introducing too much more of them as part of it. But what we do want to kind of cover is some of the approaches, some of the, the real simple takeaways and simple type of frameworks that can be applied in any workplace around health and safety, but how those are branded and how they're sold, if you will, in some respects within our businesses. And finally, we're going to talk a bit about user experience. You know, how do our members of staff, how do our stakeholders actually engage with the stuff that we're creating? And are there any things that we might want to do to improve that branding, improve that experience and improve that overall outcome or output as a result of that? So loads of stuff, James, that I think we might be covering today, loads and loads of stuff. And I'm proper stoked to get into it. Mate, me too. I love. I, I, I really, mate. Episode three is my. That's where I'm like. Come on, <laughs> let's get to episode three. That was why we birthed rebrand. <laughs> Can we just talk about episode three, please? But, but the first one was really interesting. At your point, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it, it, it. We we ever really landed on something where we were like, "Yep, yeah, this is where we go with this." And I, and I think that for me was a big takeaway. Like, yeah. you know, you are you are who you are in that moment and have been in the previous moment. So, mm. just just like just sometimes sometimes don't overthink it. Like, it's just just yeah. in that moment if you can. And that sounds really wavy and like woke and and stuff. But like, I do think we get proper round sometimes or, or i have personally just been drowned with like find your purpose what's your personal brand and it, i just got exhausted with it so i found our conversation was quite insightful for me um yeah. and it worked and i think it bounced also really well off a conversation we had with sam in the last quarterly cohort where we were talking about it from a company point of view as well mm -hmm. uh, so i really enjoyed that thank you very oh, much. good no i'm really glad to hear it. you know we we are perfectly imperfect Right, so it's just, just, just that is being like human, that. right? Like it that. really is. And and another really good saying from somebody that I may or may not know is that sometimes Peter better is better than best. Absolutely, could not agree more, James. <laughs> could not agree more. If you don't get that inside joke, that's because Peter said that a long time ago, and I stole it from him because it's a very good saying. So, I mean. We want to cover like three. I want to make sure that we cover these three points. I want to make sure we really talk about the work that you've done. Um, I think I'm, I'm curious to actually start with a question of like the, the overall topic. Like, if we're talking about safety, having a brand with a safety mm -hmm. as a function within the organization, having a brand, like, is that is that a brand on its own or is that a brand? within is that attached to the existing brand of the company i think that might be a good place for us to start is like what what is branding a, a function if we're going to yeah. brand a standalone function one should we and if we should what what really is that that's a great it's a great question and i think in some ways we're gonna i don't want to uh, confuse this by introducing something else but i do want to say that i see identity and brand 
has almost been one and the same when you are an internal member of staff working within a function, right? So your function of safety will have an identity. People will associate their perceptions, how they feel, their cognitions, how they think, and their actions well, as they act in line with that identity that already exists, right? But from my point of view, I very much see there being an opportunity to take control, to take ownership of that identity and shape it in the, the perhaps a, a more of like a, a marketing sense of a brand instead. Okay. So yeah. it's not to say that you are going to create an independent identity from a company other than you're saying that you're just going to wrap your arms around what already exists and help portray, visualize, emphasize, and share that in a positive and structured way to get what you want as a leader and to deliver on the outcomes and outputs that your function needs to. Okay. I like that. Kind of like how do we how do we communicate this message from within the confines of safety that that ha that has that develops the relationship that we want people to have with this function. Exactly. And and perhaps the, the not to make anyone's skin crawl by asking what will be quite an obvious question in some ways, but you can test yourself to think if your business has certain brands or certain identities. Every department has basically got kind of this pre-existing identity or brand associated with it, even if they don't necessarily think so, so far. I mean, the, the classic example to ask everyone is kind of how, how do you feel about HR? And, and some people will have a dry, wry smile on their face and some people will be kind of nodding enthusiastic in the car going, oh, yeah, no, HR's fine. HR's fine. Yeah, great. Love HR. Then other people are going to go. <sighs> and that's that's the that's the brand, right? That that kind of knee-jerk reaction almost straight away tells you everything that you need to know about that brand from that point of view, that hesitation or that kind of knee-jerk reaction, that positivity associated with it. And the way that I see it is that it comes down to almost two things, right? The design of the content and your engagements and your initiatives, but then the performance of those together, right? And both kind of come together to help kind of really just enforce and embed that identity and that brand. Because it's very difficult for a, a function collectively to build up identity through feelings, right? Through through sort of a, um, a, a kind of a, a trust based on, mutual feelings really from that point of view because you're trying to engage with something a little bit intangible but for a lot of brands it is built up on tasks right that that brand identity that identity that branding is very much associated with the tasks that will be delivered so for us in safety that might be for example our audits it might be our risk assessments it might be our safety roadshow day that comes down to the sites in days gone by, it might have been something associated with well-being, which is often associated with smoothie bikes and a leaflet. And suddenly, you know, your your idea of what does this function stand for? Suddenly, people kind of start to associate it a lot more with this kind of broad idea of a brand of your function that they will create in their head. And for me, taking ownership of that identity, ownership of that brand, really, and mm -hmm. shaping it into something positive, something that delivers on the outcomes and outputs that you want, that's the way to go. That's definitely the way to go. Mm. 
I, I, I like this, but it's making me think like it keeps bringing me back to like safety culture. And I don't, I don't want to go down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it does keep bringing me. So if my, my thought process of culture at the moment is like a combination of a, th- a few key pieces of academia and thought knowledge but but really as a as a whole the scientists the academic the academics that define how we should work haven't really got a clue like when it comes to organizational culture you know yeah. all of them were saying yeah i think this but he thinks that, that they, they, no one's really defined it right mm. so, <clears throat> where i am with it at the moment is like it's not really helpful to talk about culture so let's just put it there but everybody loves talking about culture so okay let's yeah. just let's just say that's a, a phrase a word as yeah. a collective to to help us describe something and then what we focus on is the interactions so every interaction with something is uh, and this is kind of how we we approach it as a company with with customers is <clears throat> a vote towards the culture that you'll get so mm. essentially the symptom of your culture is the decisions that people make the behaviors that people have right so yeah. it's the choices and the the behaviors so humans are essentially like the symptoms of your culture you get other you can have other signals to what that culture is like like the built environment and stuff like that but every interaction between the 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 human and something else and I, and I know i i did a post on this the other day or Riss fluent did a post on this the other day and i know dom cooper doesn't agree with it which and that was an interesting comment and i think we're both saying the same thing from a different perspective but mm. But that aside, I was just kind of putting that because I'm I'm pretty much sure if he listens to this, and I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a message. <laughs> um, but if we if we were to just go with that, that that mm. that's where we are as a company. Like every interaction votes towards something you're you're gonna get. So if we're talking about the people's relationship with safety within your business. And that's how you're defining safety culture is just your relationship with safety, how people see, behave and make decisions within the confines of safety in Mm. your operations. Then for me, I'm like, well, if you want to call that safety culture, then fine, whatever. I'm I'm, I'm bothered by that. And I feel like that's what we're defining. So when we talk about brand, it's like, what what kind of I summarized what you were saying earlier. That's what it feels like to me. Is that what we're talking about here is just tweaking our our interactions with safety within the within the the the, the organization. You know, I think that's that's a really insightful point, and I definitely think that you can't look at branding without looking at culture. Yeah. And honestly, I think that the two are they're definitely not mutually exclusive to each other. <laughs> It's a weird relationship, right? I'd say in some ways. To your point there about how oh this is going to be very simplistic, right, for a second, but culture being a sum of behavior, choices, interactions, questions, and actions. So I'll rewind for a second because I said that really quick, right? So culture at a very core level, you could just say it's behavior and choices, right? That that people make. At a very, very this is a simplistic level. Right? Yeah, very simple. Let's just go with that before we get into like a rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah absolutely, right. Now, from a branding point of view, then, if you perhaps a good example of this I, I find is Abercrombie and Fitch, right? Mm-hmm. So, Abercrombie and Fitch, as a brand, in my opinion, was based around elitist behavior from the business 
and then elitist consumerism practices in the sense that they did not allow slightly chubby people to represent their brand right that was an an active decision it was an active choice by that company that developed a certain culture around Abercrombie and Fitch right from that point of view I think it would be anyone that kind of certainly went up just was was around in the early noughties with a bit of disposable cash to choose where they went shopping type of thing would have probably have seen several topless male models stood outside Abercrombie and Fitch that was almost certainly in my opinion as an absolutely not a male model was quite you know, like Jesus, I didn't want to go shopping there because I didn't feel as though that brand represented me and I wouldn't fit with the culture of that business and that culture of that brand and I would not engage with their products as a result. So in the same way, in the same way, when we're thinking about safety at a very top level in terms of our brand, our identity, are we curating that brand in a way that allows for inclusive cultural engagement from customer behaviours and choices, with our customers being our frontline staff, our key stakeholders. Does what we do allow them to engage with the culture that engages positively with the brand? And can we do that properly and fully effectively if we're not taking ownership of the brand? I don't think we can, which is why I think we definitely need to, to acknowledge culture and acknowledge the control and the benefits that can come with internal branding of a function. Yeah, I I think I agree. I and and it, but it makes me let me if I go down this path and then you can say yes or no. I that is what I said. <laughs> um, if yeah, so so it, essentially what you're saying is is it should we have to acknowledge brand and culture for then to then kind of ensure that our safety work which ultimately is trying to influence people is aligned to that because ultimately that the outcome of the brand slash the culture is behaviors and decisions which are massively impactful on safety so therefore it kind of comes back to my original question should it be a standalone brand or tied in with the company brand everything that you said there correct and in answer to the question, I think that it has to be an integrated part of your business brand. Yeah. The challenge comes is if your business brand isn't strong, can you still have a strong functional brand? To which I'd say absolutely, yes, you can, right? A hundred percent. Certainly within my experience, I've had it kind of at both ends where you've had a very strong internal company brand, but quite a weak safety brand. And then on the opposite way around at the moment, which is where the safety brand as an identity has more of a like design presence, for example, and has more kind of like a structured set of expectations aligned to that brand than what exists collectively as the, as the company brand from that piece. And it's about contextualizing that brand against the values of the business so that people can still see that there's that their feelings that they're part of something bigger but not feeling that they're part of something independent to the business that they work in. Yep. Yep. I like that. I mean, if you take the, I've got it here, actually. God, fucking hell. Look at all this stuff here. This is what risk fluent looks like. 
Blimey days. For, for anyone that might not be able to see that on YouTube, James has just pulled out a a, a, a five-inch thick pile of, of papers. Booklets. They're just research papers, guidance documents, etc. They're not um, in any order. It's chaos. It looks like organised chaos. Does that, James? Just chaos. chaos. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's all out like this because I'm using it to do um, to do some work on something for yeah. a customer. But if we were to take one of my current favorites, which is the Managing Culture Good Practice Guide from the Ethics Center, which is an Australian-based um, body, uh, yeah. that's 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 what it looks like if you go and right. download yeah. it if you're watching on YouTube. Um, and they basically this whole it does what it says in the tin, really Managing Culture Good Practice Guide. I think this is probably one of the best. One of the best. I combined this with some work by Carsten Bush and work by David Snowden and work by that guy that wrote Atomic Habits. Right, uh, yes. And it, what they put in here is they call something called uh, an ethical framework, and they kind of describe it as like the kind of cultural foundations. Like this should define mm. everything else in the – in the company and they do that as purpose values and principles so your purpose yeah. is what the company exists for and and that should be actually what you exist for not something you felt was cool and acceptable to the woke community or, or whatever it should be something that you actually tangibly can deliver as a purpose um what you value as a company and your principles are like a framework of how to guide you make decisions with to that are in line with your values in and your purpose and um and i think that safety shouldn't have its own ethical framework it should contribute to that framework but essentially what you kind of said is is that their ethical framework so that says ethical framework purpose principles values purpose values principles um and and they they define they say that that is essentially the the core of an organizational culture but how yeah. many organizations do we have that just go oh that sounds like a nice set of buzzwords let's make that our yeah. purpose have you got any more buzzwords yep we'll do those for values any more buzzwords cool they'll be our principles thank you very much and it's just like so well i think i worked for and and, and as well i don't that's why i really like what simon casson does when he kind of first challenged me on like what's ethical mm. would, like, you know what, what do you think is ethical then and then we were talking about stuff like this well but if an if a company's ethical framework says our purpose is to become an uber profitable company and our purpose is just profit 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 so that's not unethical because that's their ethics it's just not in line with your ethics and now i was like oh. do you know what i mean like yeah. mind blown um and i'm and Cautious, I've gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, so I want to well, I leash on us a little bit. Leash on. Here's a little simplified uh, example of how you could use computer vision to proactively kind of identify things in the workplace as kind of learning opportunities without that kind of bureaucratic, slow, drawn-out process of reporting and then they reporting and so on and so forth. Because really what computer vision is, is, is vision, right? It's like an extra pair of eyes. But it's not got someone sitting watching that CCTV all day going, meh. 
So here's a really simplified version of, of how you could use it from the white paper produced by Protex AI um, that's AI's role in promoting a proactive safety culture. Computer vision identifies packaging is often left by the en entrance to the store on Monday mornings. The safety team reviews the selected video clips of, with the workers. Um, key point there, with the workers. So the AI has gone, hmm, this always happens on a Monday. There's something there. So it's a specific thing. So if your safety walk is only on a Tuesday, you're never going to see this. So the AI has spotted it. That was my first observation of this simple, this simple kind of story or situation. So the safety team gets the workers in and we start to have a discussion. They explain that there are too many deliveries on a Monday morning to unpack and clear away at the same time. So the health and safety manager shows the computer vision evidence to the operations manager along with the feedback and so on from the teams. And then the deliveries are spread across three days, making it easier for them to uh, manage the packaging. So you can see as a really kind of simple way of how this can help not only is that computer vision that ai partnered with your cctv has kind of spotted up a trend we've got a trend here we're really good on the other days but we're not on mondays hmm and that's something i think would be really easy for us to miss in a workplace because it's only at a specific time and a specific place so you've got to be in that specific place on that specific day at that specific time for you to spot that the likelihood of that is very low so the ai the computer vision has kind of done the work they needed to do spotted the trend pinged it up to you you're able to get the team in and go oh look at this this is what we're talking about on uh, on mondays this is happening what what's the sitch peeps and they're like oh well deliveries are just mad on mondays we cram them all in on monday it's like delivery day and it's just nuts we haven't got time to clean as you go boom learning opportunity just a very simple example of how having those extra set of eyes and you having the right attitude and approach to be able to use that as a learning opportunity can help you constantly, constantly approve, constantly learn, become a learning organization and start having that presence of positives. So you're just constantly doing stuff. I really like it. And I really like this example um, to just really clearly and concisely go oh yeah i get how that works now um so i took that out of um protect ai's white paper that you can download the link is in the description it's called ai's role in promoting a proactive safety culture for me this is all about becoming a learning organization collecting that data having all of that tech help you spot trends so that you can take that and learn from it it's just increasing all of those constant learning opportunities so go to the link in the description below have a read it's an easy read there's some really cool little chunks in there there's loads of stuff that you can learn from this paper it's not overly academic or anything like that it's, it's a really simple easy read there's some good takeaways in there um, and i think there's some really good takeaways in there regardless of you take on computer vision or not so make sure use the link in the description below and read the white paper peeps to, to, to bring that back then for, for a second but still with the context of what you've said if you've got a a business set of ethics that aren't traditionally health and safety ones that can be where it is seen as though you've got an independent safety function to your business right because are the ethics aligned is the is the safety function suddenly going to turn around and say our mission is profit <laughs> probably not i've yet to come across a safety function that has said our mission is profit right? yep. <laughs> from that from that yep. point of view but i've seen plenty of safety functions that have a mission that doesn't actually say anything about safety in it 
So, for example, within the process of branding the function within my own business, I sat down with the MD and the chairman and I said, oh, OK, well, what, what does the business stand for? Like, what, mm-hmm. what are our values as part of it? And we talked a lot about the importance of relationships. We talked a lot about the importance of transparency between people about doing what we say we're going to do. So I said, right, OK, well, you know, that that's that's really helpful, right, from that point of view. Because from a safety perspective, then that means that when I'm working with the stakeholders and with the the customers, if you will, in in the business, you know, our our frontline staff, our site leaders, our management teams, that defining what we stand for in safety has some broad, at the very least, parameters, some end-to-end limits. We know what we are going to operate within, but it also gives us the flexibility to be more specific. So we ended up coming up with a a mission within safety that focuses on two things. Inspire our colleagues to ask good questions Mm -hmm. and empower our colleagues to make good decisions. That's our mission. That's our that's our branded mission in safety. And every bit That's your mission in safety. That's our that's that's the safety functions mission, right? Inspire people to ask good questions and empower them to make good decisions. I like that. What's the what's the company's purpose or mission? Um, well, it isn't explicitly written down. To okay. with you, James, in in the same, but without wanting to you know, kind of get into the, the 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 benefits of having like a big sort of a zero bit of perspex that's got your values and what your company stands for, yeah. and which certainly I believe does have a place in in certain certain businesses and certain maturities as part of it. Having that as a bit of a tokenistic position in all of your sites doesn't really mean anything if you don't live it on a day-to-day basis so from our point of view our mission within safety of asking good questions and empowering good decisions represents the broader company values around building positive relationships around transparency through asking right questions through empowerment of staff literally by empowering them to make the right decisions by giving them the appropriate tools uh, identifying their motivations and linking to them and engaging with them and acknowledging the push and pull factors associated with it so that fundamentally we can make sure that decisions are underpinned by capability opportunities and motivations that will deliver the behaviors that we want so although the brand itself isn't underpinned by necessarily a cultural message it very much drives a positive safety culture from that point of view because it's driving the behaviors that we want we want curious empowered staff because curious empowered staff that have the right structure around them will be safe staff and they will work so they'll, they'll safely work right they're not going to work safe they will just safely work because they'll be asking the right questions and making those right decisions now that is a little bit lofty right is i'm not gonna lie you know i can't sit here and say that there's uh x percentage worth of improvement that we see month on month by a result direct result of this type of branding approach mm-hmm. but you know as well as i do from seeing contemporary politics that if you just start talking about things in a certain way it will lend itself to happening and people will naturally just associate it with what they hear and what they see mm-hmm. so from a pure branding point of view when you've got your defined mission you've got your performance element that you know what what your expectations are you can then align your design to it so for us for example our design really encompasses iconography a logo 
the, the name of the function is SHU, which is Safety, Health, Environment and Wellbeing. It's not going to be SHU, it's going to be WESH, but uh, SHU kind of rolled off the tongue a little bit more. Oh, WESH, this WESH is so much better. I don't. <laughs> Hi, this is Pete. He's the WESH lead right now. Just... <laughs> but but genuinely, genuinely, though, it's trying to just create something that has a little bit of an identity to it. And, and for us, all of our content, like, for example, we put out a a series of posters um, around COVID and it was all kind of very colourful but linked to the colour scheme of the brand within safety, health, environment and wellbeing. And at the end of it, we basically had kind of three lines and it said, by doing uh, X, Y, Z, we will be asking good questions or we will be making good decisions. So we linked up within the content that we do a call to action that's related to our mission at every single point. And that really just helps embed that identity through everything that we're doing. And it really just helps just reinforce the brand and re- reinforce the association of what people have with the brand from that point of view. Because they know that Shu is part of DM. And they know then that if Shu's asking about good questions and good decisions, the business wants good questions and it wants good decisions. So mm-hmm. again, it's it's not mutually exclusive. It's just everything complements each other, but it is in a very structured way. Mm. Would would you, if if DL that's that's right, isn't it? DL, yeah, yeah, yeah. If if DL had like a really strong purpose, brand, principles, values, whatever, like really defined. Mm. Do you think your the work that you would have done would have been less standalone and more? how do I segue into that? Because that's really strong. And you did, you created your principles or your, your missions for your shoe function because there wasn't that there for, for, it wasn't a really prominent, I'm not saying DL doesn't have a brand, obviously it does a successful business, but as a, you know, like if I was to think, because as you were talking, I, I, I tried to Google, um, as an example, if if you were to take Brewdog as a brand, yes, yeah. what do you? That's a that's a phenomenally strong brand, right? Yeah. And like, what are the kind of words that come to mind? Like things like disruption, creativity, yeah. you know, real like, real edgy kind of of wording, right? And obviously, they've had some contra- controversy. Of Just a little bit of controversy, yeah. <laughs> but, but ultimately, like. They they say they're on a mission. I've just got got it here. We're on a mission to make other people as passionate about craft beer as we are. Put the taste of passion and craftsmanship back into people's beer glasses, right? That's their kind of their kind of um mission. If you yeah. listen to James Watts, he talks all about um the punk ideology. So everything mm-hmm. like I think his first beer was called Punk IPA, if I remember rightly. Mm. So everything is this punk ideology. It's about reb, reb, rebelling. It's about doing different. It's about going against the, the 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 man and the big corporates and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. And and I'm listening to his book at the minute, which uh, is interesting. There's a lot of bullshit platitudes in there, which I'm not. You know, come on. And there's, little, there's a couple of little bits in there that I'm like, okay, this is this is interesting. But yeah. when he does talk about that punk attitude, that punk feel, it's like a that's like a value to me. Like, yeah, yeah. Mission is you know to make people passionate about great beer. Okay, cool. As a company, that's your mission. That's what we're trying to get. A value to me is that you're going to do that by being a punk, by being a rebel, and so on and so yeah. forth. Okay, cool. 
I remember seeing their HSE manager advert about three years ago. Right, yeah. And I remember seeing the words to enforce compliance throughout the organization. And I remember thinking, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. Like you as a company are all about, and this was before there was a controversy that had come out and, and it was just like, wow, you have yeah. such a strong brand and it's all around being a punk, being a rebel, you know, being creative, thinking outside the box. And when it came to safety, that's the best you could come up with. And um, I, I would have, I found, I saw the job, and I was like, "Fucking hell, I'm applying for that." Like, I want to work. Yeah. I want to be head of safety for Brewdog. Yeah. I looked at it, and I saw that, and I was like, "No." Mm. And maybe I should have. Maybe I've that definition of like, I'm, I'm glad I didn't. But, <laughs> but like, ultimately, I was like, "Wow." they they looked at safety and they clearly went no fucking way that can contribute to our punk rebellious you know ethos of the company which I thought was really interesting which kind of then brings me back to my point with you if DL had a really strong brand do you think the work you'd have done would have been more focused on how can I align the shoe function to deliver this clear values and principles that we have as a company I, I think so. I do think so. But I think at the same time, collectively, for, for everyone listening, there is a, a point of compromise that we need to identify within ourselves. And that is very much in, individually, perhaps bring it back to that bit in the first episode, we were talking about what, what do we stand for in some ways. Mm-hmm. When people hire us for a role, they expect certain things within the the broad brand of safety to be delivered on right that they expect certain outcomes and certain outputs but the method of getting there is very much at times up to us as part of it and there will be varying degrees of freedom and autonomy that's afforded to us in our position someone who's for example a she advisor on a single site won't have the same autonomy to be able to deliver transformational change in safety is that that group head of health and safety is but if that group head of health and safety is very limited by a a, a secondary or executive function that says that is an enforcer and enforcer only they're always going to have some limitations and whether or not that you know i think we, we have to say are we going to accept working within those limitations or do we want to have the capacity to change we want to have the capacity to be able to change things beyond perhaps the scope of traditional remits. I'll give you a classic example. So um, over the last few months, I've been very fortunate enough to be able to build a team from scratch within my business as well. And when it came around to creating the the title and the job spec of it, I was given a, a lot of freedom, basically from that point of view, freedom that I'm deeply, deeply thankful for. So the title of the roles that I have are Regional Safety, Health, Environment and Wellbeing of Shoe Facilitators. And within the description of the job and within the description of their expectations, it is very much to build relationships within the business, to set clear expectations, but to facilitate success through questions and decisions at a site level. And fundamentally, that is not a traditional approach to health and safety, right? These aren't managers, right? I'm not expecting them to manage regions, that the management has to happen at a site level but the facilitators are very much there to empower that management to inspire the management at a site level 
and to allow foresights to work within a framework to deliver on the expectations, the outcomes and the outputs that we want within the function that I want and that the broader executive team would like from that point of view. So I, I do think that broadly from a brand of our function, from in the context maybe of the piece we'll cover in, in episode three, don't be afraid to push the boat out on the expectations that already exist because you do have the capacity to stretch that elastic and to try something a bit different and to be a little bit bold and if the extent of your brand control is to just change the title of who you are to be something that better fits with your identity bloody hell do it because even just the way that we talk about safety at a site level at a business level can go a hell of a long way to driving better outcomes and outputs so I'm so close to going down the the, the episode three. Right <laughs> well, we we're big enough this episode three. Honestly, if it falls flat now, James, absolutely. But it's right, there. right now. It's there. I'm like, <laughs> no, I get. I, I totally get. You, I totally get. You. But uh, again, perhaps to, to very much bring back to what we've been talking about so far in summary. You know, I within my position within my business i've seen myself as an internal consultant effectively who is delivering a service i i i'm a service provider but within my service i create products those products have a certain bit of branding associated to it so that we're all speaking within a common language we're all against the same identity and that the users who are effectively the uh, the frontline staff the site leaders the site management teams they know that every time that they engage with a certain initiative it's not only something that they're doing at a site level, it's something that's a functional level, but it's at a group level. They get a sense of belonging. They're working with something that's bigger than them. At a very fundamental level, it means that they are together. We are together as a business in safety, asking questions, making good decisions. And I'm curious at this point, James, you know, from, from your perspective as someone that works with a huge range of different clients, how do you see the way that they brand safety? You know, do, do, do you think that actually as co collectively could businesses benefit from just enhancing that identity a little bit more to improve belonging and improve engagement from that piece? Oh, see, I come at this with clients from a very different. Talk me through it. How, how, how do you approach it? Well, I, I like to try and drive like what's your operational culture with safety being just an outcome of operations. Mm. So, you know, I, I just kind of come in. It, dep it depends on what, we, what we're doing, but ultimately that's how I look at it. Like, you know, if, if what's the, what's, uh, see, cult culture for me just gets like a, when we use the word culture, it becomes just a, a fucking messy space and, and everyone just bickers about it. And I don't think it's helpful, but like ultimately, like, you have a you have an operation line. Let's just imagine a hypothetical operation line, which is getting from A to B, which represents whatever you do as a as a company, as a product, whatever. Mm. You have ide the the ideology of what you're trying to achieve, and the to the B being the delivery of that service, product, whatever, be that machine or whatever. And as that process kind of goes through, there are cultural, there are, sorry, kind of 
safety outcomes from that. There are quality outcomes of that. There are performance outcomes of that. And I, and I, I just think it, it's, I just, I, I don't, I probably don't, I don't talk, I don't think about a, a brand of safety, but what I do think about is what we, what we kind of mentioned earlier on is that user experience. So if we're looking yeah. at it from like a culture point of view, I don't, I don't come at it from that point of view. I look at it from a, an operational point of view, e.g. what's your organizational culture? I would try to tie safety to your existing purpose and values and the feel of a company. Like if you're a company that is kind of, let's just take Brewdog as another example. Like if I'd have gone in there, I'd be like, right, how, how is safety going to, going to fit into this punk mentality? Because ultimately that's what the company is. That's how everyone's going to behave. That's going to define the culture of the organization. We need to understand our place in that. Now I'm not saying that we, we always would be like, oh, we're not going to be safe because we're punks, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that helps us define our decisions. It doesn't mean we rub, yeah. we don't rub up against it sometimes. Like you can be a innovative, creative, outside the box thinking kind of company, but you've still got to manage the, the risks in front of you. So as a company, they might take more risks on some things and not on the other, but we need to kind of define our non-negotiables and where those non-negotiables fit within your pre-existing framework as a company. Like what kind of company do you want to be? So I, I kind of try and look at it like you've got the operation, which is what you're trying to do as a company, and mm. in that there are risks, operational risks, quality, environment, health, safety, social responsibility, data, bribery, et cetera. We're going to focus on safety, and the, the outcome of safety impacts the people. So people should be at your core, not safety people because then and that that's how i kind of come at it being like look just focus on your process which eg is your operation and how the person is affected from that process slash operation yeah totally totally agree and again i do hope that is come across to what what i've been saying is that through for example the mission that we have through the focus that we've had on kind of like the, the brand itself it is very much revolving around what what uh, it's dubbed in Amazon, right? As uh, the person in the chair, and what that means is that it is your your customer from that point. If you have a business meeting and you're discussing a certain strategy in Amazon, yeah. it's understood that they have an empty chair, right? And that empty chair is supposed to be there to represent the end user, okay? And that effectively the people around the table are advocating for that person that is missing from that chair because every one of their decisions has to be value adding for that person. Yeah, yeah. The, the simple way of doing that is obviously to actually have a physical representation in the chair right at the time you're having the question, and that's for example what we do with risk assessments. Naturally, you know, we 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 want the chair, the person to be in the chair at the time that we're doing the risk assessment. We want to know exactly what they know. We want to understand how the reality of the situation is, yeah. so that when we're designing our controls, when we're branding the way that we will deliver it, that it's going to work with that end user from yeah. that point of view so yeah I, and i do engagement on operations spot on 100 percent, absolutely i do really like your your kind of principles i think that's going to help define everything that you do within safety every decision that your facilitators have to make or every situation they're in they can 
constantly come back to those principles and or that, that mission, sorry, that mission mm-hmm. statement said, well, does it contribute to that, which can help us understand um they can help us understand whether this piece of work has value or not. So I, I re- really, really love that. I, I, all I'm kind of saying is that I would try and push a, a customer to have that as a company mm. mission, value, purpose, statement, yeah. whatever we want to call it, um, as opposed to a safety mission. But I completely understand why you've done it because there yeah. was lack of the, of the latter. Um, so I, 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 Get it, love it, like it. I think when we're talking about kind of the like the the semiotics, if you want to go Dr. Rob Long or whatever, yeah. but like the icons we use, the logos we use, the language we use, the content we put out, like if you are working for something like Brewdog, but the safety video you're putting out is like Hello and welcome to the first video in your online video course for manual handling. And it's really boring. You are yeah. going to be a bit like this isn't aligning with the company brand. Um, but if if you're like, okay, we're all punks. I've got to make a safety training video. How I'm going to make a punk safety training video? It, that for me works ten times better. It's like instead of safety just being like. Oh, I'm just here to do some risk assessments. It's like, no, I'm here to do some fucking brew dog risk assessments. Yeah. Or I'm here to do some DL risk assessments, or I'm here yeah. to do some fucking whatever the company, insert company name and brand risk assessments. So it's not if if you were to take that down to its 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 tiniest, tiniest, really nitpicky kind of point of view, your risk assessment template, look at it. Is yeah. that risk assessment template the, you did you did you make that or choose that because that's how you think everybody should do risk assessments, or did you look at that and go, that is insert company name here, yeah. risk assessment? Does it Absolutely. feel like your company's risk assessment? Do you know I would love to know, Joe's off the back of that. If in in Brewdog's risk assessment training, do they promote dissent when working out the risk of it and evaluating the risk? Right, because exactly. a part of me feels as though that's maybe a missed opportunity yeah. if they're not using that to push out. For example, as a, as a branded approach, right to safety is about championing dissent and cognitive kind of diversity in some ways to get the outcomes that they wanted to get that kind of positive buy-in and positive outcomes so i totally agree if 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 the business allows for it integrate with that identity and use it to your advantage Mm -hmm. celebrate what's great about it and how the the safety work that you do aligns to that piece and aligns to that brand and there's a great bit sorry i interrupted you no no go ahead no go go ahead I still haven't had him on the podcast yet. And I think I've mentioned him about a million times on it, but like in the prep pool that I did with Stuart Hughes, where we prepared whatever we were going to talk about on the podcast, which has been canceled and rescheduled a million times. So Stuart, if you listen to this, let's get that sorted. But one thing we are going to talk about when we eventually get him on the podcast is something he was asked in his interview to be the head of safety for Mercedes. He said, every single department knows Mm -hmm how they bring their 10 seconds to the car. How does safety bring 10 seconds to the car? Such a good question. That's a phenomenal question. Great question. It's like the purpose of Mercedes Formula One team from, from admin through to Lewis Hamilton brings 10 seconds to the car. How are you bringing your 10 seconds to the car? So 
safety now has to think about the work that they do. How is this bringing 10 seconds to the car? And I think that really helps us understand the work that we're doing is not cluttering up the process, e.g. slowing down the process without value. Because if it is rubbing up against that, it's not bringing 10 seconds to the car, actually this is slowing us down, then we know that it needs to be proportionate to the reasons why, like, no, we've got to go really slow here. It's not a quick process. And I know as our purpose as a business is to be quick and nimble, Mm. but we're not that right now. Why? Because we're working 60 miles up in the air or something stupid like that, or we're working over explosion risk. Because if this goes wrong, it's really bad. So I think that enables us to actually do what we safety as originally intended, which is be reasonable and practicable because our purpose is defined. So we can go, is this delivering a purpose, contributing to the purpose of the organization? No, no, it's not really. Why, why are we doing it then? Well, we're doing it because actually this is a really dangerous situation. And then we go, okay, cool. So it forces us to critically ask ourselves what we're doing. I'm, I'm going to throw a small, it's not necessarily a grenade or a spanner in at this point, but it is certainly just an acknowledgement. And however much we're talking about purpose-driven safety work and purpose-driven safety initiatives and sort of all of that kind of functional approach from that point of view, there are absolutely going to be people that just want to come to work, do the job and go home at the end of the day. And they couldn't give two shakes of a lamb's tail about w- what purpose is behind it. They just want to know what they're going to do. They're going to do it. They're going to do it well. And they're going to go home. Right, yeah. And that's it. And that is 100% okay. Like there's, there's literally nothing wrong with that from that point of view. There is a, not everyone in the world is going to be purpose driven right? in, in the way that we're kind of talking. But they'll still be influenced by it. But they will absolutely be influenced not only by the structure that they end up doing that job in, but the context of the people's behaviour around them. So even though they themselves might not buy into it, if they see other people buying into it, it will just innately rub off on them from that point of view. So if you do find yourself working in in a business where a, a small handful of people just couldn't give two shits about it, right? Don't get disillusioned about the power that th- this approach could still have, because it will still very much work on the people around that. And naturally, th- oh, got to be that uttering the dirty C word for a second, but culture will just naturally grow. It will just naturally develop. Oh, I thought you were going to drop the C there. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, see you next Tuesday. I'd, I'd have been so proud of you. If you... <laughs> <laughs> so, but but gen- gen- genuinely, though, you know, the, the the approaches that we take, if as well, branding isn't always easy. For, for every one great bit of branding that we've seen, there is absolutely going to be another negative one to it that didn't quite land in the right way or didn't quite adapt to it. And the key thing to this and it's something that will fit into episode three as well is that we just need to have as professionals a a detachment from ego if something that we've created doesn't work and be able to step back and acknowledge that it hasn't gone right from that point of view but fundamentally take the learnings reapply it and improve it reiterate it and deliver it again in a way that will be better Mm. and if we attach too much to our own brand as part of that or perhaps our own our functional brand it can limit its effectiveness if we're not allowing it to be agile enough from that perspective. Mm. So, but you know, people come up with great ideas every day, like they really do, but it's the execution that counts. And sometimes we, we don't always get it right. So 
Yeah. Again, having having that flexibility within our own brand to adapt, I think is 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 key, no matter what we do from that point of view, and reflect on it as well. Okay. So all this all this work that you've done on building a brand and your mission statement for say, what is it? What did it actually look like in reality? What 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 does it look like? Well, how are you doing safety at work? Yes. Like, will I recognise? A, a DL risk assessment and, and be like, oh yeah, that's a that's a risk assessment. Yeah, yeah, a- a- absolutely, one hundred percent. The the best way that I can describe it is that the functional approach to safety work reduces complexity, reduces harm, and enhances health. Right, Bro- broadly speaking, it, it was reducing risk naturally as part of that. So everything that we do is still very much kind of focused from a safety point of view to get these type of broad outcomes. The framework that we use for that is something called organizational architecture. And again, this is this is where things can get a little bit mumbo jumbo for a couple of minutes because there's a, there's a lot of different frameworks in safety. There's a lot of different frameworks within business. There's a lot of different approaches that people can take as part of things. In in some of it's absolute bollocks, right? Which <laughs> just really is, right? Some of it is pure snake oil. Some of it is very well alliterated, but just might not work for you as a business, right? From that point of view, it just it sounds good when you say it. So finding out what works best for your business and having the capacity to identify the needs of the business right now, but helping the business articulate where they want to be in the future and using a scalable framework that can get you there so you're not having to chop and change like once a year type of thing is always going to be that little bit more sustainable from that point of view. And for me, this is where organizational architecture came in. Um, I'll briefly describe it. It's a, a almost like a, a five-point web, right? So everything is interconnected. It has culture at the center of the web from that point of view, but then it's surrounded by strategic direction, which is your mission, vision, and strategy. So what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? Mm-hmm. It's supported by the structure of your business. So how are you going to structure the uh, incentives, the motivations, the actual achievements of the work? How are you delivering your management system? Is it digital? Is it paper-based? What does that structure look like? And how does it fit in the geography of your business as much as it fits in the formal and informal networks within your business as well? So strategic direction, structure, culture. It's then supported by skills bases. How are you training your staff to be able to use the structure or work within the structure rather to deliver on your strategic goals? Like fundamentally, it's around training and development. And finally, the last one is processes. So what processes, tools exist for your trained staff to use within the structure of your business to achieve the strategy underpinned by the culture that they live every day of the week? Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, that is organizational architecture and it can expand and it can contract and it can be as big in some ways as you want it to be from that point of view. It can be as little in others, but collectively taking these five different areas together and treating them holistically and delivering on expectations around them will deliver business improvement. And that's something that I've been following for the last, certainly within this business for the last 18 months. And we are in a much stronger resilient position now because of that than we were before we now have for example at a very base level a completely digital health and safety management system that's still underpinned by plan do check act but fundamentally one that is now based on microsoft teams rather than one that's just within like a standard shared drive that's a very very simple example 
of something that has added a huge amount of resilience, flexibility, but also has improved productivity around safety through having that standardized digital approach. I'm going to put you on a spot a little bit here. With Please a bit, do. Yeah, with go a ahead. Go ahead. Completely hypothetical scenario. Well, if you did all of this work, right, and yeah. now was a construction company and you were forced by your tenders and customers to have a shitload of paperwork that yeah. did not contribute to though your mission statement uh, to promote, you know, good open questions and creativity and so on. Um, how would you deal with that? Oh. Within the context of the question, right, and as as because there there are obviously a lot of factors that would come into play with it, right. I think the key thing is being able to identify what you can control and what you can influence in the context of what really matters right now, right? So if your really matters right now need is to prove compliance to clients, customers, sites, regulators from that point of view, doesn't really matter if it's going to be on pieces of paper or if it's going to be in a digital format. But the fact is that you've identified the need, you've identified the problem, and you've solved it in a pragmatic way that works for the site. Over time, iterative improvements will allow you to just get to a point where it might be less paper-based from that point of view. But there has to be that perspective that's there to understand that it isn't going to be a simple overnight switch to it and that it will take time just to, to bring to that, bring it to that point, really, from that that but just that perspective. Mm. So prioritize, simplify, but be pragmatic with what you know will work to meet the needs of the business right now. Be an excellent problem finder before you are a problem solver. Mm, I like that. I like that. Very often in safety, we go into solutions mode before we really, truly understand the problem. Yeah. Oh, 100%. It, it's, I, I, I think every safety professional at one point has done that, at least at, yeah. least at one point. Yeah. At least at one point. And it's, it's hard to get out of. Yeah, it is because you're, 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 you're seen as a person to fix a problem. Normally when people come to us with, there's a problem, right? I, I'll get a phone call of a customer that I've been trying to hound to become a customer for years. And then all of a sudden they ring me and I'm like, I know why you're ringing me. Something's gone yeah. wrong. Um, yeah. but, but anyway, to come back to, to uh, my question to you, it's an interesting thing that I'm experiencing with a lot of customers is that we're trying to manage actually this week with a customer, a new customer that we've been talking to, mm. um, you know, he was like, oh, you know, we want to do this, this stuff on the shop floor. We're doing some really kind of high risk dynamic work. Um, and my guys are like really highly competent people. They can't do their job without being competent. Um, but they're just drowning in this paperwork, like, yeah. because we need it to tender for this job or have this. And and he was like, how, how do we deal with that? And I was like, well, what, what work are you talking about? Like, like rams and stuff that they're just generic. They don't have any relation to the work, but we need them for, for CDM, which is ironic because the CDM legislation and guidance says that generic won't work, but maybe that's another bridge we'll cross another day. Um, and, and he's like, oh, they're doing it. Himself. So what are you saying that this work has no connection to the reality of these guys and girls in, in the do, in the operational mm -hmm. environment? has no connection to their work world. He said, oh, no, not all, not all. It's just generic. 
I said, but you can't get rid of it. No, because it delivers value for us as a company. We can't tender without it. All right, we do it, but let's just stop calling it safety work. Let's just start calling it part of the tender work. Yeah. It's not it's not safety. That's just we can carry on doing it. I know it's got a safety name on it. It's got risk assessments, method statements. Let's just yeah. do it, but let's just take it away from the, those people on the shop floor. Keep it so, completely separate. I I love that. And I'm gonna say something that just to take it or leave it from that point of view, but I would say that perhaps semantically, you've rebranded that piece of work outside of safety. And as a result of that, you've made the ex- the remaining, the residual brand of safety within that business stronger because you've cut the crap, right? You've literally, you've reduced the complexity, you've made safety simpler, but in reality, all you've done is rebranded safety into tender from that yeah. point of view. But from that, that point, is a, yeah. a, a massively powerful tool. Yeah. God, I think Bloody hell, that'd be brilliant. Can you imagine if all, all of us in, in our respective fields and sectors just cut the crap out of safety overnight for things that weren't adding value from well, that point? Well, I think this is the risk of like you can read like safety anarchists or like Decker's book or something and go in and chuck out all of that paperwork. Yeah. Because it doesn't deliver value to the operational safety, right? Mm. So if you were to take Provan and, and Decker's and Ray's paper, Safety yeah. Clutter, which I've also got down here, yes, um, yeah. they they talk about like value to kind of operational safety, like the safety of work, they call it, mm. right? And then the safety of work paper that they've got as well. And I think there's a bit of a risk in this stuff in that, there is work that's done in the name of the say in name in the name of safety mm. that doesn't have a value for operational safety, but it does have a value to the company. Yes. So I think it was very careful here that we go in and we start throwing all this stuff out, just piss people off. Yeah. But I, I think if we ask we we ask a simple question. Does, I actually really like the three C's that they use in the clutter paper. Let me, mm. let me get it to make sure that I've got it right. Oh, I bet if I go on here, it's going to fucking screw the internet up. Do you want me to do it? I'm going to try and find it. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's a really, I know there's a really good pod, podcast episode that uh, Proven's done. It's in the Safety of Work podcast, but they do cover this paper on it. And I, I believe they that do cover good. three C's. That is a good one. Yeah, actually, he does cover it really nicely. And then, no, it's not in there. It's basically consent human here we go human centered workshop it's in here right i have it ah right yeah no god have you, have you got it have you found it have you i've got it i've got it as well i think i've got it there's three c's on this one slide that i've just quickly clicked through as part of it i'd be bummed now if it isn't the actual three c's well the ones i've got is the three c's to deal with clutter from their paper is uh contribution how much value yes. does it add confidence how do we know that it, yeah. it adds value and that should be based on evidence or belief and consensus to what extent the stakeholders involved agree so and they put, does it contribute to the safety of work? And then when I've used it in my workshop, I put, if no, does it deliver another value to the to the company? If yes to that second question, then you need to protect the shop floor from it. You can mm. keep it, but you need to take it away from the shop floor. Yeah. Because their focus should be operational. So if you're doing this work and it's safety work, e.g. risk assessments, method statement, but it's not for the shop floor, then, then remove it from the shop floor. 
put it in a tender department or the procurement yeah. department. And then that department might go, oh, we're not doing safety work. Okay, fine. You <laughs> carry on doing it because you're the people that make these generic risk assessments, but just leave yeah. it in a folder called safety for procurement. Yeah. Don't even have it on the shop floor. Have a completely different risk assessment. Absolutely. The, in my the, opinion. No, I, I, I 100% get where you're coming from with that. There's a term that I heard of recently that's called situational empathy. So we've all heard of like emotional intelligence type of thing. Yeah. Situational empathy is kind of perhaps the, the cousin, if you will, of emotional intelligence as it was described, but it really identifies both the business needs, but then the individual person's need within the context of those business needs. Yeah. So in reality, if the business need is to have it because it's a confidence inspiring piece of work, but at a personal level, it adds no value to it. The situational empathy allows you to then define that and then shape it and move it and adapt to it and just change it accordingly from that piece. So yeah. the the three C's I absolutely love, absolutely love. And I think it's, yeah, between that and situational empathy, fantastic, really good. Yeah. It does bring me to, to a question for you, right? Now, with the way that you approach your clients and the type of works that you do with them, do you have sort of like a, a framework yourself? So obviously I've said here about organizational architecture, which is one that I use. Is there something that you use um, like equivalent of or something that's kind of like your go-to? Yeah, we. I, I use a load of, of models, like, and some are my tweaks, my interpretations on other models and some are just other people's models, right? So... Yeah. Um, or principles like the the three C's from that we've just talked about, safety clutter. Yep. I use that quite a lot. Um, I use it slightly different, um, just focus on our is this delivering a value? If it's mm -hmm. not safety, then it's for someone else. And that's how we use that. I use Rasmussen's dynamic safety model pretty much all the time, and I don't shut up about it. And it is annoyingly often coming out of my mouth, whether it's at home or, or whatever, like just to understand that every single thing we do, we are existing within three def three points of, of pressure not to yeah. fail economically, resource-wise and performance-wise. Um, I use that all the time. Contrary to popular belief, I do not think Heinrich Triangle is, is shite. I just think how, <laughs> I think how we use it is shite. So I don't think it's stupid. I think everyone that uses it is stupid. Yeah. Um, so I use again Carsten Bush's work for that model. And and I would still use Heinrich Triangle, but use it per risk type. So mm. it, it says X amount of near I don't use the numbers because I think the numbers were just there for illustration. But if you want to find out more, then listen to Carsten because I think he's the only person who actually talks sense about this. Yeah. Um, so I use that quite a lot, um, but we have our own adaptation of like the factors that influence people's performance or decisions or behaviors in the moment, which is a combination of several piece, piece, people's pieces of work. So we take the Swiss cheese model in a way, e.g. that we can put in layers of, of safety and those layers of safety or layers of influence, which is I like to call them, um, are broken down into four sections, which is yeah. organizational uh, factors, human factors, cultural factors, and situational factors. So all of those will influence people's behaviors. All of those have latent weaknesses within them, hence why we use the Swiss cheese model. And so if you imagine 
if you imagine like a, a cross and then in those is four, obviously four quarters. Mm. And if you were to have organizational, I'll tell you what, I'm trying to explain it without having it in front of me. It would be better if I had it in front of me. Said so I've got to screw up my own model. That's right. Trying to d- describe it. And then just be like, oh no, that's not what I meant. So if you would imagine you have like a cross with four quarters and then so the ones on the right are more influenced by the more strategic and and leadership and those will be organizational and cultural factors and the ones on the left are more influenced by kind of operational and dynamic things in the moment Um, and they are the situational and human factors but but i i try to emphasize to people with this kind of model it's not like it's not rigid yeah like It's not like something can be organizational and both situational at the same time. Something can be influenced by leadership and also in the operational moment at the same time. It's not rigid. It's like, it's a guide, you know, all models are are wrong, but some are useful. (laughs) So it's a point to like, this is not as a, please don't take my model and go, boom, this is the world that we, according to me, it's like, is to help me make a decision or, or interpret a situation. So, Gotcha. And then, and then, just one last thing. So basically, the ones in the bottom of the section, human factors and cultural factors, are less obvious, so they're harder to see. And um, again, just a guide. Not everything. Some human factors are really obvious. Uh, so they're less obvious if they're human and cultural. They're more obvious if they're situational and organizational. E.g., gotcha. the weather, the fucking procedures, whatever. Yeah. But then each one of those will have loads of layers. And then this yeah. is it gets messy. You're trying to do, you, and this is why all models are wrong, uh, but but some are helpful. Is because a model can never define, like show us enough in a way, and that's why we've always gone. Homer's trying to go stupid. No, yeah. no, that's just because you just took the model. You didn't read his work behind the model. So in a way, you've got like these four sections: organizational, cultural, situational, human, and in those there will be loads of layers. Of cheese, you'll do loads of things of organizational factors, policies, yeah. procedures, you know, risk management, your budgeting, all of that stuff, you will layer up. And then in cultural, you'll have loads of things that are layering up as um within culture, and same as human, same as situational. So you end up like a stack of cheese yeah. in each one of these, each one of these sections, and all of those influence the moment. Fucking hell, trying to on a podcast describe a model <laughs> and hard work. I honestly think that you've done a great job of describing how that model comes up together. I, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I've got a a, a a question for you. Yeah, I don't know how easy it will be to answer for a second. So one of the biggest challenges that I think it's fair to say safety theory has. Yeah, is that it's not very easy to articulate the outcomes or outputs yeah. from safety theory. Yeah. There's a lot of very technical language that tends to get used with theory that yeah. can lose a lot of management teams or kind of frontline staff. Yeah. So how would you recommend, let's say that someone has a model that they want to use, how would you recommend they articulate the benefits of using that model to the key stakeholders that will be on the receiving end of the outcomes or outputs cool. 
But I think the the most important thing, like if I could get it tattooed on my body, all models yeah. are wrong, but some are useful. I genuinely would like, I think it's a very important heuristic to have in our mind when we're consuming academia or we're trying to improve. Like we we've got, I've got a load on our website. Most of them, I think are a bit shit now actually. And I need to take them down and and redo them. Um, But like, they're not shit. There's just opportunities for improvement. Yeah, definitely. That's what they are. We've evolved and, and they've evolved, you know, but they're trying to communicate something. So we've, we've also yeah. got like an organizational empathy model, which is trying to communicate that you're, you're all very good now at having empathy for the shop floor, but you're all really shit at having empathy for leadership. Yeah. And you're all really shit at cross departmental empathy. So we all still hate, 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 hate HR, but we're not considering the pressure that HR has yeah. and, and so on and so forth. So our organizational empathy model is trying to communicate that message. Our dynamic risk model is trying to communicate a message of like blanket rules don't work um, and, and so on and so forth. So for me, it's like understand that a model should be used to try to illustrate or communicate an idea mm. or a theory or an approach or to help like guide you solve a problem. So our four factors of human performance model is like, it's, it's not set in stone. It's like, it's a yeah. loose guide and it helps us. So I use, if I, if I was called now, one of my clients, Come and come and look into an incident for us and, and help us learn from it. I would use that just to help us structure that process. Yeah. So I would use a collection of things. I would go, I'm going to do an ECFA from the from from the incident timeline. So I'm going to timeline that out. So I'm going to really go and work backwards from the event. So that's a model, ECFA model. It's an event causal factor analysis model. So I would use yeah. that as a as a way to timeline out that incident. And then out of that, I would use human organizational performance, latent errors, latent conditions, um, precursors, and yeah, and critical steps. So I would put in a critical step. Where was that point of no return? Yep. And I would have so I've got a hot model and an ETFA model, and then off the top of that, each of those latent conditions, precursors, all of that stuff, the decisions that we made, I then use my own four factors of human performance to help me understand what were the factors that influenced that decision. Yep. So I'm kind of like I'm not really answering your question. I'm very aware of that, but I'm I'm more like. And models are not something I don't think we can, This, which is ironic because I do this. I have it on my website for anyone to download and use. But like, mm. it does probably, I'm probably about to contradict that because they're probably not, it's not helpful probably to have it, just download it. Um, yeah. And then off you go because it's easily misinterpreted. Now, the original intent was to have some videos with those downloads, but we haven't had time to get them done, um, which we yeah. might do at some point. But I'll try to answer your question in that how do you kind of use a model? It's perhaps how how do you translate the theory into relatable experiences for frontline users or frontline beneficiaries? Oh, right. Yeah. Stories like, and you only get stories if you try and do it. Right. So just, just try and do something. So I, I like, I think 
Um, sometimes I sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet here and I'm not, but like a lot of the time we get people off the podcast being like, oh, how did you learn all of this stuff? I read a book and I went to work and I tried it. And then I read another book and I went to work and I tried it. And then I read a research paper and I went to work and tried it. And then I started a podcast where I started talking to all these people. And then I, I, I learned something off them and I went to work and tried it. And, and I just... I, I see all of these things, all of these models, you know, the the cultural framework, ethical framework, DOE hot manual, freaking safety clutter, BBS, a whole lot. It's just a toolbox for me. Yeah. Like it's just a big toolbox. And then over the years, I've worked out ways that, that work for me. And sometimes I'll go into a, a company and I'll be like, Do you know what? They really like the, I don't know, the fucking fishbone. So we're going to communicate to them in the fishbone model because that's what they like. Yeah. So like how how you use them to make them relative and usable on the shop floor for me is you have to use them. You have to try them, but think of them as tools, not as not as a religion, like they're not a religion, religion yeah. kind of approach as a be all and end all, get it tattooed on my body. They're tools that you can use and how you communicate their relativity to the shop floor is by using them and then you'll get stories and then you can say, so like this four factors of human performance, if I'm communicating this to someone, I nearly always use a workshop um a picture of us yeah. doing a workshop of somebody dropping some glass off a pallet because that's a story that people can relate to and it's an image. There you go. That's what context and behaviours looks like. Yeah, I, I to totally get that. And the, certainly the power of storytelling when you articulate in the use of a model is is a huge, is a, an insanely important part of branding your approach to health and safety within your functions. Yeah, a lot of the time. However, it, a lot of people don't really care about the theory; they care about the outcomes. Right? They care about the practical side of stuff, and yeah. that, that's not to sound a little bit simple, right? From that point of view, or to kind of simplify, or, or just sort of really detract from what, what, what I'm sure are many people who still would like to hear about the theory side of stuff. But from a purely business point of view, it favours the what rather than the why. The why is still important. But it definitely fed the, the what will get you the outcomes, the why won't necessarily always get you there as part of it. So yeah. I think to, to your point, certainly actually implementing them and as a, a leader within safety, as a functional leader, as someone who is delivering and curating safety, articulate it through the use of a story, articulate the benefits very succinctly, as succinctly as you can, but in a way that relates to the audience, is always going to be much better than knowing clearly how to just explain your theory through and through but without that practical benefit at the end yeah and and if you've if you've got a model and you've read a model you've looked at it you've read a model do you read a model you read a paper and there's a model in it right yeah i, I use those three c's from well, not just for safety clutter i use them for everything yeah like everything does it contribute does it deliver value do I think this model can deliver some value? Yes or no? Mm, nah. Mm, yeah. Right. How do I know it can deliver some value? Is, do I believe it? Yeah, I do believe it. Is there any? Is there any? Is there any research or evidence behind that? Um, and and this is where I think we fell down with with Heinrich Triangle. Is like yeah. we didn't we didn't read that research and what he was actually trying to say. So 
yeah, there is some research. We'll read it. Do we understand it? Yeah, we do. Is there any consensus? What are other people saying about this model? And other people are saying it's shit. Okay, what? Why are they saying it's shit? Uh, because of this, but that's not what this research says. So you can you can use that to guide yourself through whether you want to put this model in your toolbox, this framework, whatever it is, in your toolbox or not. And if you get really weird about it, you'll end up like me and just have hundreds of papers that are just here in these little what are called. Which no one seems to know what these are, but they're called Euro bars. They're like little plastic. Things. You just slot down a printout paper and it turns yeah. a printout into a book. It's so good. So good. Never see, I've never seen one of those before in my life. Never, so see, never seen one. So many people. I, I, my wife has like a massive operational admin background and I said to her, I'll just yeah. buy some Euro bars. She was like, what the hell are you on about? I was like, these little black things, you just slot them, they're plastic, and you just slide them over a printout and it grabs the pages and turns it into a book. She was like, I have no idea what you're on about. When I brought them, she was like, oh, that's pretty cool, actually. Now I'm, she beats them because I'm, I'm going to make this into a very uh, roundabout tangent link to what we've just been discussing, Mark, for a second. Okay. So you have purchased a product to meet a need that you've had, right? Yep. Your experience of that, your <laughs> user experience, now that you've actually physically had it, is bloody brilliant, right? It's mm -hmm. simple. It's easy to do. It delivers exactly what you want and you can articulate it fairly easy to other people, right? As, yep. as part of it. Although it is much easier, I'm sure, to see it than it is to hear it as a description. Definitely. Within safety, trying to understand that user experience is a bit of a tough one. We, we've got plan, do, check, act, right? As our approach to understand broad user experience and then incrementally improve upon it. But do you think that as safety professionals, we do enough to engage with the users of our products? So the users, for example, of our risk assessment templates, our standard operating procedure processes, our fire door check sheets type of thing. Do we do enough in actually speaking with the users and saying, how can we make this easier better simpler less complex no no <laughs> not I... at all not by a country mile i don't <laughs> think like and i've been there i've been there i've, yeah. been there. I've created forms types up risk assessments and and not even considered the user experience on the shop floor i've just assumed because they're supposed to they will read this and sign it or they will do it because they're told to I've, right. been there, I've done it but now very much so we we will consider the the well we we i pretty much do everything for like a, what we call a people-centered approach yeah which is the same as like user experience basically i think that is a, a massive learn did you did you find that you did that more when you became a consultant than you did when you were an in-house profession? I probably have more freedom to, to a point, have more freedom to do it as a consultant because I, yeah. I'm the nature of how we market ourselves and how we sell ourselves and how we price ourselves. We end up working with a client that either gets it or doesn't like yeah we yeah. we it's a very bad business model but i turn away more business than i do take it on um yeah it, it, we get i've had we've only been in business eight months i've turned away more than what than what we've took on because mm. it's just like there's i i'm you're not 
I'm not within your budget because I don't want to work like that because I want to be hands-on. I want to be spending time talking to the shop floor so we can understand and deliver a people-centered approach. And that's not what you want. So, you know, do we do work that's like the, the, the tender safety stuff? Yeah, because I don't think that's safety. I think that's tender safety. So mm-hmm. we don't need to do a, a people-centered approach. Just do that and it's done. And get out of the way. Wicked. Now we can do some proper safety. Did yeah. I do that in an employed role? Only really in the latter, in the latter years, like really later on, um, yeah, probably the last couple of years in employed role. So yeah. I've probably done it more in the consultancy because I've had the freedom to, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I 100% get you. A part of me thinks in some ways that as internal health and safety professionals this is why i'm saying that we are employed within a business right we are we are employed as like that health and safety manager for a site type of thing is that we don't necessarily appreciate the user experience because we don't really have any other competition right literally we would give out a risk assessment template for a site to use and in theory that's the only one that those departments would use because it's our, it's our, there is no, where, where else can those departments go? Right? Yeah, yeah. But where else are they going to go? God, they're, they're not, they're not going to court a, a different supplier. They're not going to go reach out to someone at a different site and say, oh, this one's, this one piece made is shit, right? Send us yours instead. Right? Yeah. That, it, it doesn't happen. So actually, do we, by virtue of just seeing ourselves as a silo internal health and safety professional, not court, competition that might limit how effective how good how just just beneficial our products are and actually would we would the productivity and the benefits of health and safety actually improve if we did treat ourselves as though we did have external competition Mm. to push us to be better to push the experience to be better that's a that's a really insightful point i think actually it's making me wonder now like I think we we don't. It's interesting that, that I was talking to a consultant yesterday, um, and just noted the time. We are going to have to wrap this up in a minute. I've completely. I've no idea how long. I've <laughs> no idea because we spoke for ages before we pressed record. Then we had technical issues. So like, I'm like, I've lost track. This could be four hours long. This could be four minutes long. I as long as it's long. 47 minutes long, that's fine yeah. by me. <laughs> Um, when I was talking to a consultant yesterday um, who had been listening to the podcast for, for years and had no idea that we lived 10 minutes away from each other. So we went and met in the yeah. pub um, and um, we were just chatting away. And, um, and, uh, and, and I was saying like, you know, how, we were talking about risk assessments and templates and how we write the assessment. And I said, I straight, I don't, I don't entertain a, a matrix. I don't have a matrix on yeah. that. And he was like, I, I've had customers force me to put a matrix on. And I'm like, but on what basis? Like, on, on what basis? And and it is this like from a consultant point of view, what they think safety is is the visual like this is what a safe working procedure should look like. Like shitloads of words, you know, step one, left foot, step two, right foot, like all of yeah. this stuff. And consultants are kind of measured on the paper that you deliver. Mm. Uh, and it's really interesting that from a consultancy point of view, often it's like you can send them stuff and they'd be like, well, that's not a risk assessment. Why? Well, I haven't got any risk ratings on it. 
Yeah. Where does it say it needs a risk rating on it? And um, we actually did a free risk assessment the other day for a local charity that they're, they're doing oh, like yeah. a, a charity stall. Um, and we said we'd do a risk assessment for free for them just to help them, you know, do what they need to do. And um, and I said, but do, does the site that's wants this risk assessment off of you, do they want to use their template, which is very common that you mm. must use our template? I don't know why. Um, and they were like, no, 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 they're happy to use, you use your own. So I was like, great, cool. That's good. So I did mine. And, and then I noticed as I'd done mine, they said, but if just in case their templates attached, so I was like, oh, curious. I'll have a look. Yeah. And actually it was quite refreshing. It didn't have a matrix on it. It was very simple. It just said, what could hurt us? Who could get hurt? How could they get hurt? And what are you doing about it? And I was like, oh, so refreshing to think that. <laughs> like, I thought it was yeah. just us. Yeah. Like it's so refreshing to see, which is nice because often I think you're judged on what people think safety stuff mm. should look like, not what it not what it delivers. A- absolutely. And it is from a user experience point of view, understanding to start with, are you aiming for a user experience outcome? Or are you really expecting a user experience output? So an outcome might be related to how that user thinks and feels an output might be related to how they act right from that point yeah. of view. So that's a really good place to, to potentially start from that point of view. But I'd say for any, especially any internal health and safety professional listening to this, challenge yourself as if you were delivering this externally to the site and get involved with the actual users to find out what would improve their experience would it be something that it could be something as simple as a bigger font size right on that sheet of paper it could be something say there's one step too many or i i don't find as though this gives me the value for time right rather than the value for money because as an internal person you might not be dealing in value for money which an external you'd, you'd be expecting from an external uh consultant but you would be dealing in value for time instead how long will it take me to do this particular task is it going to be worth my time to do it to the level that it would deliver here so in that case your user experience might be related around time rather than cost as your benefit analysis from that perspective and certainly to one of the points that we made earlier on as well without getting too uh, without wanting to introduce too much complexity back into what we were saying before identifying the purpose even of why our users are doing this in the first place are they doing it because they just need to be compliant or are they doing it because they have more of a moral belief that it is the right thing to do yeah actually can we shape our experiences according to that purpose and that belief and the values of those users that might make it land a little bit better might embed it a little bit more and to be honest with you james that's one of the reasons why within certainly my business at the moment I'd taken the approach of of building a safety management system within Microsoft Teams rather than jumping straight into a third party because the users very much had said that they'd be going from paper through to a complex third party solution that they just wouldn't, they just couldn't absorb it quick enough. Bloody hell, that'd be a bit like being in a drag race, you're going from 0 to 100 in split second type of thing. Were they on Teams? Sorry, were they on Teams? Were they using Teams already anyway? No, uh, just internal shared drive sort of system from that point of view. So Microsoft Teams, in my my approach, has very much been the stepping stone to eventually get to a third-party solution. But it's what the business wouldn't needed right now was just effectively that stepping stone so that it is a natural progression for using something that's a little bit more resilient, which does come with a third-party system rather than just doing something internally. 
Mm, I wonder whether like you'd gone to teams because that's where like the audience is. Do you like in mar- marketing mm. where we go, where's your audience? And then you need to go where your audience is. So like we we got just a, a little bit of advice off a marketer for social mm. media and they were like, well, what you do, James, why would you bother with Facebook? The majority of the audience is, is like B2C type audience, mm. whereas you need B2B audience, which is LinkedIn. So you don't yeah. even bother with, with Facebook. And then it made me think like, do we do that in safety? Do we go where the audience is? Because, you know, the audience is probably on WhatsApp. I guaranteed your your workforce is on WhatsApp. And it might not be an official WhatsApp group, but I'm pretty sure I'd bet a good chunk of money that they've got a WhatsApp group for that work team. Yeah. And and again, what, what I'd say is that when we're identifying where the audience are, it's very much to identify even just the tools that they use. So for example, would we say that they're on WhatsApp or would we say that they're on their phone? And if they're on the phone, then actually the for example, like the Microsoft Teams app, you can do nearly everything that you can do through yeah. the Microsoft Teams like did the yeah. desktop app from that point. So yeah. for example, for us at the moment, when we are reporting accidents or reporting health and safety events, you can literally click on the Teams app on your phone and literally you've got the form there straight away. And that will do literally everything that you would want it to do from a third party app, but through Microsoft Teams instead. Yeah. So again, that progression, that stepping stone, the patterns that exist for someone opening up their phone to do something on it to report an issue, that's already there, but it's done through Teams instead rather than just your, your, your dedicated app, really, yeah. from that point of view. So, awesome. Again, identify the needs right now, but scale it to the needs in the future and be able to visualize what that could look like so that your solution now isn't going to become obsolete by it being outgrown by the business too quickly. Yeah. I love that. And and I've seen what you've done on Teams and it is it is phenomenal. Like I'm kind of sitting here listening to you be like, oh, it's a stepping stone. I'm like, fuck the stepping stone. Just <laughs> like it's so good what you've got out of that that Microsoft Teams, which we all just thought was like just another version of Zoom, right? And now you've turned it into like a full-on safety CRM system in a way. It's amazing. Do you know, when, when we ask the people, what do you want? And the business says, we want to have control without complexity. Well, actually, there's no definition there of saying Microsoft Teams. There's no definition there of saying apps that they, they want control without complexity. The fact that that can be delivered through Microsoft Teams saves us a whole bunch of time, a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of effort, and doesn't require people to com- learn how to do something completely new mm-hmm. because they're using the same software that they use every day. They're using Excel. They're using Teams. They're using Word. They're using a form. Like it's literally, it, it doesn't need to be any more complex than that relative yeah. to what our needs are right now. So yeah. again, don't be, uh, if anyone's listening to this thinking, bloody hell, I, I, do I need to use an app as part of stuff? Do I need to look at like a third party solution? Don't be afraid to look inwards as well and see just what you can do on Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Forms and Microsoft Flow. Because it might just be that actually right now, You've got everything that you need. Mm, nice. I love that. And that's a lovely place to end it, I think, buddy, because um, one, because again, I've no idea what we've talked about. Two, because we've <laughs> I mean, not talked about, I mean, how long we've talked for. And yes, yeah. what I meant to say there was, I've no idea how long we've talked for and what we've talked about has been good. There we go. Good save, James. Good that's save. What, I wasn't a save. <laughs> You know what? Someone throw me a fucking rope. <laughs> um, 
And what I was going to say is, because why is it important? We've we've talked about what we wanted to talk about is because I'm going to let the audience know that we've already recorded this episode once because we didn't talk about everything (laughs) we wanted to talk about. And we may or may not still put that podcast out at some point. If I, if I need an extra if I need an extra episode. But for now, it will sit there in the archives of Free Banded Safety. Um, that's what I was trying to say, but I chewed my words. Um, and for the last reason that I have to get on another call in three minutes. <laughs> no problem. Well, listen, I have absolutely loved having this conversation with James. It's been I've made a whole bunch of notes from it as well. And to be fair, I'd love to pick your brains again in the future about your four-step approach with situational, cultural, organisational and human factors approaches to things. I think there's so much longevity and sustainability for delivering really good improvements in health and safety around that. So, yeah, yeah. If, if bloody, I might come back for a fourth episode and come really on it if, you, <laughs> if you'd allow it. But no, okay. honestly, I really I love the conversation and really looking forward to episode three, where we will very much be uh, talking about safety and just, 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 yeah, just what, what could be better? Mm. What might be different? And we might right. touch on a couple of the contemporary things that have been happening recently in the sphere of safety chartership and safety acknowledgements and post nominals and such as. Dun, dun, well. dun. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right, mate. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. And I great conversation. Actually, the fact with you any day, mate, on, on the models and shit that I blur out. I literally have an idea. I jump on Canva and I turn it into a model. Like I love no- it. I love it. Spontaneity. Fantastic. Thank you very much, mate. I enjoyed Brilliant. that. Thank you. Brilliant. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll catch you in episode three. Okay, peeps, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pete. That's episode two of The Courtly Co-Host. Looking forward to the last one, as we said in the episode. Um, make sure you stay tuned for that, and I'll see you at the end of next month. If you need any help with this stuff, make sure you go connect with Pete. He's very giving with his time and always happy to help and chat. Um, so please go and connect with him. He's a great person to follow and connect with. Um, if you need any more in-depth support and you're thinking about getting a consultant to come and help you with some of this stuff then check out riskfluidltd.com we love we love to work with our listeners Um, it's all part of our journey to rebound safety so other than that I shall see you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.